Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Natalie Gruniger here, author and founder of On the Tudor Trail. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today about a very important instrument of Tudor government, the Royal Progress. If a Tudor king or queen wanted to show themselves to the people, connect with their subjects throughout the kingdom and reinforce their authority, they needed to travel. And travel they did, moving regularly, whether for political reasons, to hunt, for pleasure or necessity. The court's movements from around October to November through to June, were generally confined to the principal royal houses and lesser houses, smaller and more intimate royal property in the Thames Valley, and can be classified as the movements of the itinerant court, whereas the court's movements over the summer and early autumn months, which took them much further afield and followed a pre-planned and extended itinerary, were part of the royal progress. Today, I'd like to focus on the royal progress in the reign of Henry VIII. Each year, in around June, the King's travel itinerary would be published, along with the names of those who would be accompanying the King over the summer months or grass season, which was generally between August and October when the hay was cut and the hunting optimal. This eagerly awaited list was called The Guest. It detailed exactly where the King intended to stay and for how long. It also recorded how many miles he would travel between stops. This distance travelled per day varied and depended on factors such as the conditions of the roads and the king's preferences. During the 1535 summer progress, the court travelled between 6 and 14 miles in a day, whereas the average for the 1528 progress was 9 miles. The court usually travelled by horse, although on occasions they combined this with travel by river. Ladies who chose to ride would mount a puffery usually the most expensive and highly bred horse of medieval and Tudor times, known for its smooth, ambling gait. The very young or the infirm could make use of a horse litter, which Simon Thurley describes as a lightly built curtained cabin attached by two long poles to a couple of gently ambling horses. Despite owning a number of grand houses, the king enjoyed staying with courtiers and noblemen while on progress, especially during the first half of his reign. Between 1509 and 1530, the court stayed with around 50 different noblemen and courtiers. 
The majority of these men were royal favourites, and interestingly, around a quarter of them were also Henry's jousting companions. These men included Thomas Boleyn, he was the father of Mary, Anne and George Boleyn, and a talented diplomat and skilled politician. Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, Henry VIII's childhood friend, who married the king's sister Mary without permission and lived to tell the tale. Thomas Manners, Earl of Rutland, whose maternal grandmother, Anne of York, was an older sister of Edward IV and Richard III. Henry Norris, a favourite and close friend of Henry's, and John Seymour, perhaps best known for being the father of Jane Seymour, who would become Henry's third wife. In an age of personal monarchy where Henry was the centre of power, access to the king was of paramount importance, and the men at court vigorously competed for Henry's attention and favour. Maintaining royal favour by no means an easy thing was the key to a courtier's success. If you had the king's ear, then you might be able to influence him in the affairs of state and possibly gain preferment for yourself or your family or associates. Henry enjoyed the company of men whose interests coincided with his own, hence the heightened political significance of the joust. The king was an enthusiastic and talented athlete, until, of course, age, health and injuries took their toll. He enjoyed playing many sports, including tennis and bowling, but in his youth, jousting was his greatest passion, and we see this reflected in the architecture of the palaces built in the first half of Henry's reign, a number of which, like Greenwich and Whitehall, featured permanent jars. When Henry is not jousting, he's out hunting, another of his favourite pastimes, and one that would become Henry's principal outdoor sport after his exit from the tilt yard. Henry spent up to 16 hours per day hunting, and so courtiers vied for a position on these expeditions, where a long period of access to the king was guaranteed. In 1526, Cardinal Wolsey attempted to curb the rising influence of Henry's courtiers by introducing the Eltham Ordinances, which, among other things, restricted the number of people that could accompany the king on his hunting trips to a small, hand-picked group of companions. It was therefore significant with which courtiers the king jousted, who he chose to accompany him on the hunt, and who the king visited during the summer progresses. Let's now turn our attention to the summer of 1535. In early July, just days after the execution of Thomas More, Henry VIII and his court set out from Windsor Castle on what would become one of the longest and most politically significant progresses of Henry's reign. The king, accompanied by his wife of two years, Anne Boleyn, intended to travel through the West Country to Bristol before circling back through Hampshire, returning to Windsor in early October. In the end, plague prevented the court from visiting Bristol, and in order to avoid the pestilence, a number of changes were made to the original itinerary. Furthermore, Henry and Anne were so delighted with the hunting and hawking on offer in Hampshire that they extended their stay, not arriving back at Windsor Castle, until Monday 25th of October. As with all of Henry's progresses, this would be the usual mixture of work and play, However, there was a very clear political agenda, and on this occasion work came first. The itinerary devised by the king's ministers and approved by the royal couple sought to honour local gentlemen who favoured reform and who'd shown support for Henry's second marriage to Anne. Towns with strong reforming parties like Bristol were also singled out for a royal visit. After setting out from Windsor Castle, the court made their way east to Reading Abbey, the 12th century monastery founded by William the Conqueror's youngest son, Henry I, and from there progressed through Oxfordshire to Gloucestershire and Wiltshire, 
staying at monastic houses, royal property, and as previously mentioned, with local reformers. These included Nicholas Poynes, Sir John Walsh, and Sir Edward Bainton. Nicholas Poynes was around 25 years of age at the time of Henry and Anne's visit to his house, Acton Court. His paternal grandfather, Sir Robert Poynes, had been a protégé of Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, whose sister, Elizabeth Woodville, was Edward IV's queen. Poynes's grandfather married Earl Rivers' illegitimate daughter, Margaret, survived the reign of Richard III, and like many members of the Woodville family, supported Henry Tudor's cause. His loyalty gained him a knighthood and the king's favour. Henry VII dined with him at his house in 1486, and Henry VIII honoured him with the positions of Vice-Chamberlain and Chancellor to Queen Catherine of Aragon. His eldest son, Sir Anthony, was a diplomat and naval commander, and Sir Anthony's eldest son by his first wife was Nicholas Poynes. Nicholas was a friend of Richard Rich, the man whose testimony had helped condemn Thomas More. He was also a friend of Richard Cromwell, the maternal nephew of Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's chief minister, and was present at the meeting between Henry VIII and Francis I in 1532, when Anne was presented as Queen in all but name. Despite his grandfather's service to Henry's first wife, Nicholas was a reformer and so honoured with the royal visit in 1535. Nicholas's aunt and uncle, Sir John and Lady Anne Walsh, like their nephew, were among those who favoured reform. Anne and Henry stayed with the Walshes in August 1535 at their home, Little Sodbury Manor. In the early 1520s, the Walshes had employed William Tyndale, who later translated the Bible into English, probably as a tutor for their sons. Tyndale went on to write important, controversial works that would attract the attention of Anne Boleyn, notably The Obedience of a Christian Man, published in 1528. Anne acquired a copy and marked passages to show Henry. Tyndale set out to prove, among other things, that the king is in the person of God and his law is God's law. This message certainly struck a chord with Henry, who is said to have declared, this book is for me and all kings to read. From Little Sodbury Manor, the royal party travelled to Bromham House, the home of another supporter of reform and a long-time favourite of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn's vice-chamberlain, Sir Edward Bainton. In 1531, Sir Edward married Isabel Lee, a half-sister of Catherine Howard, who would become Henry VIII's fifth wife. Sir Bainton went on to serve each of Henry's queens until his death in 1544. The length of the king's stay at each of the staging posts on the summer progresses depended on many factors, including the size, convenience and splendour of the residence, and its proximity to good hunting ground. It varied from, in length from a fleeting overnighter to 15 days. A lack of space meant that Henry usually only stayed for a few days with courtiers, reserving the longer visits for the larger ecclesiastical palaces, religious houses or royal properties. In the 1520s, there were only six royal residences that could comfortably accommodate the full court, which numbered during the wintertime up to 1,500 people. Often referred to as Henry's greater houses, these were Woodstock, the Palace of Bewley, Richmond, Hampton Court, which was not officially Henry's until around 1529, Eltham and Greenwich. The court appears to have halved in size during the summer progresses, numbering between six to 800 people. Although this varied greatly depending on whether the king's wife and children, along with their households, accompanied the progress or not. In 1518, the Princess Mary's household comprised 69 servants and officers and their 12 servants, plus 21 ladies and gentlemen. So when Mary joined her parents on progress, the numbers were significantly increased. 
the number of nights spent by the king outside royal palaces between 1510 and 1529 also varies and ranges from just 14 nights in 1521 to 113 nights in 1526, reflecting the uneven nature of the progresses from one year to the next and the different political and social circumstances of these years. On average, though, the court spent around 55 days per year outside royal palaces. In 1521, the king spent the summer alternating between Windsor Castle, Woking Palace and Guildford, whereas in 1526, Henry stayed at more than 20 different houses between July and October, encompassing seven counties. The emphasis was on meeting the prominent men in charge of each of the localities and enjoying the hospitality of his noblemen. In 1526, Henry stayed with William Fitzalan, the Earl of Arundel at Arundel Castle, at Petworth House, the home of the Earl of Northumberland, and at the Vine in Hampshire, home of William Lord Sandys, Henry VIII's Lord Chamberlain. In August, he stayed at Thomas Lyle's house in Thruxton, with Sir John Seymour Wolf Hall, with Thomas Ampson at Eastern Naston, and at Sir William Compton's residence. Sir William succumbed to the dreaded sweating sickness just two years later in the same epidemic that killed Anne Boleyn's brother-in-law, William Carey, and which left Anne Boleyn bedridden for weeks. During this same progress, Henry also stayed with Sir Edmund Bray at Edgecott and with Sir Henry Norris at his house in Compton. I'm sure you're all familiar with Sir Henry Norris. He was Henry VIII's groom of the stool and, among other things, attended to the king's toileting needs. This might sound like an appalling job, but it was seen as entirely honourable in Tudor times and certainly had its perks. Norris was always provided with rooms next to the king's, an honour afforded to only a handful of other courtiers, including, at various times, George Boleyn, Lord Rochford, and his uncle Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. Norris also controlled access to Henry's privy chamber and spent a significant time alone with the king, which meant he could advise and influence Henry. Furthermore, anyone wishing to present a petition to the king had to first seek Norris's permission, so he wielded substantial influence at court. His successful career ended badly, though, when he was accused of being one of Ampeline's alleged lovers and executed in May 1536. Like his father, Henry VII, the king also regularly stayed at monastic houses. In 1510, the court stayed at ten monasteries during the summer, and in July 1535, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn stayed at Reading Abbey, a favourite of the king's, Abingdon and Tewkesbury Abbeys, while Winchcombe Abbey accommodated the majority of the court, while Henry, Anne and their immediate retinue were lodged at nearby Sudley Castle. When visiting monastic houses, the royal party would have almost certainly been accommodated in the abbot's house, within the Abbey precincts, as this was the only building suitable to house such distinguished visitors. These houses were usually very large and sumptuously appointed. While the dissolution saw the destruction of the majority of the claustral buildings, the abbot's houses were often retained as they were easily converted into luxurious private residences. One such example survives in Tewkesbury and forms part of what is now Abbey House, located next to the west front of the church. Hosting the king and his court was a great honour and was certainly a sign of royal favour, but it was also a huge expense, as not only did you have to accommodate your own household, you also had to house the king and queen and their entourage. Even just accompanying the court was expensive. In 1543, Thomas Heenage, the king's chief gentleman of the privy chamber, had to request a loan from his father-in-law to go on progress. 
And let's not forget that the royal party would also expect to be entertained. Courtiers often try to outdo each other, each hoping to put on a more lavish entertainment for their royal guests than the previous host. Perhaps the title of most extravagant host should go to Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, a long-time favourite of Elizabeth I, who played host to the Queen and her royal entourage in July 1575 at his Warwickshire home, Kenilworth Castle. Dudley spared no expense when it came to entertaining his Queen. For almost three weeks, the sound of music, fireworks and merriment echoed throughout the castle grounds. The diversions on offer ranged from masks and dancing to tilting and bear-baiting a gory but immensely popular sport in Elizabethan times. Dudley spent an extraordinary amount of money on building works alone, all in a bid to win Elizabeth's hand in marriage. In 1510, Edward Hall, the English historian whose chronicle was published in 1542, described how the newly crowned Henry VIII spent his time while on progress, namely, I quote, exercising himself daily in shooting, singing, dancing, wrestling, casting of the bar, playing at the recorders, flute, virginals, and in the setting of songs and making of ballads. In 1526, Hall reported, quote, All this summer the king took his pastime in hunting, and nothing happened worthy to be written of. This is though slightly deceptive, and certainly not true of all of Henry's progresses. In 1515, Edward Hall's report reflects the political nature of the progress. Quote, This summer the king took his progress westward and visited his towns, castles there, and heard the complaints of his poor commonality. In 1535, the king mixed business with pleasure, signing a number of important documents relating to the appointment of three new reformist bishops. Winchester Cathedral served as the backdrop to the ceremonial centrepiece of the 1535 progress, the public consecration of Edward Fox, Hugh Latimer and John Hilsey a ceremony performed by Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, almost certainly in the presence of the King and Anne Boleyn, who'd worked tirelessly to secure their appointments. In April 1541, Henry VIII confirmed that he would travel to York with his young wife Catherine Howard and their households, in the hope of meeting his nephew James V of Scotland and of reasserting royal authority in parts of his realm that had recently been torn apart by rebellion. During this progress, the council sat each day and devoted time to listening to complaints in the various counties through which they passed. Maintaining communication between the travelling court and the capital was vital to maintaining effective government. For this reason, Henry VIII had messengers garbed in royal livery who carried messages in special boxes between the various houses. These messengers made up to 700 trips per year and covered a lot of ground. To remain effective, they needed to change horses every 20 miles or so, and so a system was devised whereby fresh mounts were kept at various places. In 1512, Sir Brian Tuke was appointed Master of the Posts to supervise this system. By the time that Henry's daughter, Mary, came to the throne, a messenger carrying a letter from London to York could do so in about 55 hours. In terms of expenditure, Often large sums of money were spent preparing for the royal visit, as the royal apartments had to be in good order and luxuriously furnished. Once the guest had been approved by the king, James Needham, the surveyor of the king's works, would ride the intended route, inspecting each of the properties where the king intended to stay. He would note down any improvements or repairs that were required and ensure that these were seen to before the king's arrival. When Nicholas Poynes discovered he'd be hosting a royal visit, 
He didn't just refurbish pre-existing apartments, he built an entire new wing in anticipation of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn's visit in August 1535. He also commissioned sets of Italian and Spanish ceramic plates and fine Venetian glass vessels with which to impress his sovereigns, and all for a visit that lasted just two days. Coins was though rewarded for his efforts as he was knighted during or shortly after the visit. In 1540, Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, also went to great lengths to ensure his house, Grimsthorpe Castle in Lincolnshire, was ready to receive Henry and his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, in August 1541. The Duke added an entire second courtyard to his home to cater for his royal guests. There was also the matter of a grand reception to consider. Regardless of whether the host was an abbot, nobleman, courtier or city corporation, the king and his royal guests were always received with great pomp and ceremony. The mayor and other local dignitaries would receive the royal party outside of town, where they would merge and ride in procession to the cathedral or principal church. The reception might also include pageants, although this was usually reserved for entries of particular importance, like when Charles V entered London in 1522. The royal party would then make an offering at the church before being escorted to their accommodation where gifts were exchanged. The size and value of the gifts varied and were generally a reflection of the current political situation. For example, during the king's visit to York in 1541, he was presented with 20 fat oxen and 100 fat mutton. The guests detailed where the king intended on staying during his summer progress. However, there were many factors that could alter the original itinerary, including weather, food shortages and the outbreak of disease. In 1535, Henry and Anne intended on travelling through the West Country to Bristol before returning to Windsor. However, an outbreak of the plague in the city forced them to abandon their plans. Instead, they remained at Thornbury Castle, where a delegation of townsmen from Bristol came to pay their respects and present them with gifts. Disease was not the only influence on the court's itinerary. The king's will also played a major part. In 1535, the royal couple were so delighted with the hunting and hawking in Hampshire that they delayed their return by almost a month and new guests were prepared. Moving the court from place to place was a huge undertaking. One historian wrote that nothing save war was more disruptive to the orderly well-being of court life than a royal progress, and Simon Thurley likened it to a rock band on tour. Royal officers left ahead of the royal entourage and ensured that there was accommodation and provisions for the entire party. The clerk of the market rode out before the king to ensure there was sufficient bread, beer and meat for the court. This, however, did not mean profits for local producers. Quite the contrary, in fact, as the royal purveyors, whose job it was to acquire food for the travelling court, were entitled to purchase food at a discounted price, known as the king's price. Interestingly, this benefit did not extend to courtiers or churchmen hosting a royal visit. They were required to pay the full commercial price. As very few houses could accommodate the entire court, gentlemen harbingers were charged with the important task of pre-arranging accommodation for members of court at local inns and private houses in the area. Courtiers were often willing to pay a bribe in order to secure the most comfortable beds. While Cardinal Wolsey tried to crack down on this practice, he himself took part. In May 1520, he offered the Harbingers 20 shillings to secure him good and convenient lodgings in Canterbury, Sandwich and Dover. At times, pavilions, as seen at the Field of Cloth of Gold, were erected to supplement a house's permanent accommodation 
and accommodate members of the court. 200 of these were taken on the 1541 summer progress, the most luxurious tents even used to house Henry and Catherine Howard, where there was no other suitable accommodation. Although many of the larger houses had basic furniture and a skeleton staff, the king and queen's personal belongings, including plate, bed, tapestries and clothes, travelled with the royal party. The officers of the wardrobe were primarily in charge of packing the royal belongings into chests and coffers and of transporting the goods by horse-drawn cart, mule or boat, a process known as removing. The fact that the Lord Steward's department did not have its own transport meant that various towns and villages through which the court passed had to provide horses and carts at a fixed and heavily discounted rate, a practice equally as unpopular as the king's price. The grooms of the chamber or privy chamber were responsible for setting up and furnishing the royal lodgings at each new destination. According to the French ambassador, around four to 5,000 horses were used on the progress to York in 1541, four to five the usual number, four to five times the usual number. In 1523, 26 carts were needed to transport Princess Mary's belongings alone between Richmond and Greenwich. Nothing, though, compared to the 169 carts needed to move Queen Elizabeth's household in 1589. However laborious the process of moving the court was, from the beginning of his reign, Henry VIII understood the importance of getting out amongst his people and of allowing his subjects to see him in the flesh. The king's annual preambulations reflected his love of spectacle and pageantry, but they were also elaborate demonstrations of his power and magnificence and essential to maintaining royal authority. Thank you very much for your time and I do hope you've enjoyed this talk. For further information or to get in touch, please visit www.onthetudortrail.com. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.